welcome to season three of Gill Athletics Connection Podcast. If this is your first time here, we're so excited you hit the play button today. If you like what you hear, check out our library of hundreds of past guests that is sure to give you value. For everyone else, we're so happy you've come back. Quick favor, if you haven't already, consider taking a minute to rate and review the podcast. This simple act helps amplify these amazing stories, and we just love to hear your feedback. Heck, we may even read it out loud in a future episode. Okay, that's enough of an intro, right? Let's get to it. See what today's guest has in store for us. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Mike Cunningham. I am super excited. I just want to jump right into this. Help me welcome the wise, the wonderful head coach of BYU Women's Cross Country, Diljeet Taylor. Diljeet, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Uh, you well, you know, I'm super excited about this. Uh, you know, a little, little behind the scenes for listeners. Diljeet and I have been working on this for, is it fair to say six months? It's been a while now. Since March. Yeah. Okay. So more, see, it's almost been by the time this will, you know, by the time you're listening, it's January, we're doing this at the uh, tail end of December. It's been a while and she, you get all the grace, all the grace in the world. You've been a little busy <laughs> throughout all this time. So it's been quite the year, but I'm happy to be here now, especially this is a little bit of a downtime for us this week before we start back up for indoor. So um, timing worked out. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited. Let's get started. Dilji. You know, we're going to talk about some of these amazing things that you and your team have accomplished in this unbelievably long 2021. You've, you've had three seasons in one calendar year. It's 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 already a, 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 a kind of a compact calendar when you do cross country, indoor and outdoor. And we just made it even more right into inside of 2021. So uh, we're going to explore that and kind of the decisions and process that you came up with uh, how you accomplished that this past year. But uh, we want to get to know you a little bit more. Why don't we start with where track and field start for you? I think like every young kid, I did a lot of sports growing up and running was the thing I was the best at. So mm-hmm. Eventually, I just went out for track and had some success. I think when you win, mm. it's fun. You enjoy it a little bit more. And that's where my journey started. I never ran cross country in high school. I played tennis all through high school. So tennis was in the fall. So I would play tennis, basketball, and then I ran track in the spring. Um, and yeah, but running was the thing that made me good at anything else. So And where, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Central Valley of California, went to oh. Ceres High School. Yeah, okay. He's a California kid. Yeah, love the sun. Uh, every Californian I know wants to move back to California. So Not well, now. Not now? Okay. <laughs> yeah, every, it's a, there's a strong uh, gravitational pull back to California. I, I've never, you know, gas has always been $5 a gallon, so I've never understood why California is this uh, pull but it is for all Californians so uh growing up you're doing tennis and basketball and track uh talk to us about your like when you started doing track when you started getting like maybe a little better you said winning kind of you know that's always encouraging right how how did uh that go and what kind of coaching did you have I actually had a really great freshman year coach coach Johnson Robin Johnson was a PE teacher that was coaching track and didn't know much about workouts but definitely was a positive person. And it just made me fall in love with the sport a little bit more. She actually was the one that wrote a note card to me when I went to uh, one of my track meets, I think it was sections or state, no sections. 
Uh, and that, I don't know if you know, but I, I do that with all of my athletes, I'll write note cards before every single race. I've been doing it for over a decade, but it started with her. She wrote me this note card before one of my bigger competitions. And I remember opening it and just reading those words of encouragement really resonated with me. And, and it made a real impact in, in my life as, as an athlete. And then as a coach, obviously I didn't know I was going to get into coaching in high school and my trajectory in the sport is probably different than most. I grew up in a pretty strict Indian household. So I was not going to be allowed to run in college as I got recruited junior and senior year. That was not an option for me. So kind of ventured on my own and ended up being a walk-on at Cal State Stanislaus where I was recruited several years earlier, but just would drive by at two o'clock when they were having track practice and about six months of driving by at that 2.30 PM time and seeing these athletes out there, I just, I said, I have to try this. So I happened to walk out during practice one day and Kim Dice, who was the coach at Cal State Stanislaus. I, I, I don't know if you remember me, um, but I'd like to try out for the track team. And she was like, of course I remember you. She tried to recruit me. She wanted to come talk to my parents and do a home visit and all of that, but they, they weren't interested. It's not what young Indian women do in college. Um, and, and so I just walked on and had success. My first year qualified for nationals in the 800 and just fell in love with it all over again. So it wasn't something that was really in the cards for me. I, I happened to just, um, I felt like I was missing something in that college experience and, and it was definitely the sport. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, I love exploring the positive impact coaches make on young people right where they are. You know, sometimes we get caught up that we think that we have to coach at a power five school, or we have to have a team of a hundred have real effect. And honestly, if you coach 10 kids, you, you have an amazing effect on kids. This tell me that I want to like honor this coach, this freshman coach, freshman year coach, coach Johnson, Robin Johnson, Robin Johnson. Yeah. So she does something that, you know, let, let's be real. She writes a note that's not earth shattering. She didn't, you know, put something in tablet form here. Right. Like, I mean, she writes a note, but that has such an effect on you. So not only does it have effect on you in the moment, like it touched you, like, like, was this like, I don't want to say like the first time someone showed like it was you were, but okay. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, did you tell me, tell me you still have the note. I, I do. Oh yeah, I do. Awesome. Um, yeah. I think growing up, I'm not sure you hear those words a lot sure. that someone mm -hmm. believes in you mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean they don't believe in you. It just means that that expression maybe That's wasn't right. there. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was the first time. And I always remember not so much the note card, but I remember how it made me feel. And it was so uplifting and inspiring and encouraging and special. And I wanted, when I got into coaching, I thought about all of the different coaches I've had and the impact they've made in my life, good or bad, uh, and how I wanted my coaching career to impact those athletes that I coach. And that was one of the things that was really important to me was I want them to remember how that made me feel. I want my athletes to feel that way. And so it, so it touched you in the, in the immediate, in the present, and you said now, so you've carried that on to your coaching career today, and you write a note to every competing athlete 
every race or like not every race, right? Obviously championship races. No, every single race. Yeah. Every single race you write a note of, I'm assuming encouragement and empowerment, you know, uh, trust and faith, like, you know, like, look how awesome you killed this work. I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I just- yeah, over a period of four or five years when an athlete competes for you and they hear that same message over and over and over again, I think it just becomes more powerful. I, I love that. You, you know, you hit the nail on the head that, you know, and you said young people specifically and maybe true young people, but uh, all people, <laughs> uh, I'm, we don't hear enough positivity, right? And, and you, you're right on. It's not because people don't think positive of you. It's just much easier to say a negative or to not say anything at all. Or, you know, sometimes people are positive and it becomes like this hokey thing. Oh, what a, you know, you're just saying that. So like, I love that positivity side of it. Like, that's so huge. I, I like, I'm like, I'm in love with that. Like, I love that deal. G like, that's like the most amazing thing in the world. That's awesome. Well, and I didn't know how long, honestly, it was going to continue because these note cards take a lot of time. Yeah. And as championship season approaches, they get a little more artistic. I would say I'm not a super artsy person, but I'll put pictures on there or special motivational quotes uh, for the bigger meets. And I, I didn't know how long that was going to last. But when you hear the feedback or athletes after they graduate and they have this huge box of cards that they've kept through the years, you just realize the impact is meaningful and it's important. So that now will probably be the thing that people remember about coach Taylor as well. She always wrote these note cards, Um, but hopefully the impact goes much further than just the words in, in the card. Well, I can't wait for 30 years from now, I'm going to be interviewing a coach for this podcast because I'm going to do this podcast forever. Uh, and they're going to tell me like, yeah, I had this coach in college, uh, Coach Taylor, and she would write us notes. And I'll be like, holy crap, I know where that started. Like, that's amazing. H- have you, uh, is Coach Johnson still with us? Yeah, yeah. H- have, you, have you told her like anytime recently, like, hey, you know, how you, I don't know if you even remember that note card. I'm sure you wrote a lot of note cards, but let me tell you how not only affected me, but how it's affecting my squads. Have you told her? Yeah, she, her and her husband both follow my journey in coaching. And I know they're super proud. Um, just when you come from a small town and, and are doing things, I think people tend to remember that, but I, I always pay gratitude to the impact she had in my life. And she did not know anything about track and field. So the impact she made on me as an athlete was not because of the X's and O's or the Mm -hmm. success. It was, it was bigger than that. And, and I always remember that because we can get caught up in the X's and O's and chasing the wins. And it's important to be reminded of, of the real reason that we do this. I love that word gratitude. I mean, that, that hits it right on the head. And even that explanation of like, it doesn't, you don't have to be the best coach that knows all quote unquote, I'm doing quotes here guys, because this is impossible, but to know all the X's and O's and how to be the perfect distance coach or sprint coach, et cetera, that, that, that it could be a part of it. Like, I, I think, you know, I'm a huge proponent of professional development. So I think you should be getting better at your craft, but the impact you make on young people, high school, 14 to 18 years old and college, 18 to 22 year old, it, it's immeasurable. 
what a, a note. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 as much as I don't want to move on from this, I, I love that so much. So uh, as you were, you, you explained that, you know, maybe some um, uh, differences and how you were coming out of high school to go to college, when as you were looking at the team at Stanislaus, what were you thinking of majoring in? What was kind of the, um, like, I, I'm going to become a teacher or a doctor? What was your thought process there for a career? I had a really good fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Sparks, that I remember her telling the class one day we could be anything we wanted to be. And I never really thought of it like that. It, I just felt like my life probably would have been planned out for me like it was for my aunt and my mom and my grandma. And just to have someone tell you, you have the opportunity to chase whatever dream you want and you can do it. it took me courage. But a couple of weeks later, I had to go up and ask her, even me, like I, I can do that. And she oh, said, wow. yes, especially you. And that's, that was it. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted someone else to have that same feeling that I had in fifth grade. I can do this. And so that was what I majored in. I got my teaching credential at Cal State Stanislaus, majored in liberal studies hmm. and had a great opportunity after college to run for the Nike farm team that trained out at Stanford in Palo Alto with coach Frank Gagliano. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so stay in, in college for a second here. So I, you kind of hit the you know, spoiler alert there. If you're running for the Nike farm team there, that means you, you got pretty good. I know you said you qualified your freshman year for national. So how did your career develop and what, events were you primarily running? I was in the 800, the 1500, and I was the lead leg of our four by four. So oh, yeah. we qualified for nationals my senior year, my third year there, we qualified and I, I actually ran the eight, the 15 and the four by four at NCAAs and was runner up in indoor that senior year was second, uh, was the last qualifier in, but ended up just saying, why not go for it? Yeah. And just barely finished second. So three-time All-American. Again, the times are nothing to boast about because now we're decades later and just <laughs> technology and things it just, are, things, are, things just are so fast. Stupid yeah. right now. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> How you guys are making success. these kids so fast is crazy. I just don't get it. <laughs> it's fun. Um, but yeah, I was at a small meet and Gags was there with some of his B-level farm teamers I think I ran the 1500 there and him and Kim just had a conversation about what my plans were after college. And it, he invited me to come out and I did it just loaded up the car and went and chased this dream running for the farm team. And that's probably the couple of years that really changed the trajectory of my career path and my life. He, he was the person that saw the coach in me long before I did. Were you still, while you're training with him, were you teaching or still pursuing the teaching path or was it you're all in on the 15? No, I was in the master's program at Stanislaus. I thought at this point, maybe I had a few <laughs> stints of teaching at the elementary school level and it wasn't quite what I remembered when I was there. <laughs> uh, so I thought, well, maybe let me get a master's degree, uh, enter this program. Maybe I'll coach it or teach at the collegiate maybe teach some courses, maybe get into a doctorate program later. Wasn't really quite sure. Still wanted to make an impact in, in people's lives. But after being on the farm team, there was a workout we did. And I love to just stay and chat with gags after practice. The women would get done and then the men would 
have their practice. So I, I would just chat like, oh, this person did this. I think they can do this. And we just talked shop a little bit, but he pulled me aside one day and asked me if I'd ever thought about coaching. And I had never thought about coaching as a career path. And at that same time, my college coach, Kim Dice, had mentioned she had contacted me and said she was going to be going into administration in the next couple of years. And she had pegged me as someone who maybe could fill her role in coaching at my alma mater. And so those two things were happening at the same time. So two people in my life that knew me pretty well had brought up this notion of, of me going into collegiate coaching. And that's what sparked the interest of, okay, I like this. You know, you, you've had, you've expressed some so far, but, you know, mentors are such a huge part of our lives and, you know, gags being, you know, if you're picking a Mount Rushmore and you don't have gags on there, maybe you're picking a jumps Mount Rushmore or something. I don't know, but uh, gags is certainly going to be on a lot of people's top five board here. What was it about not only your own sounds like kind of natural curiosity about, you know, watching the men when they're doing theirs and having just seen the women and asking questions, not just, you know, why did you do that? But Hey, I, so I saw her do this. Maybe she could do this. You know, like you, you kind of started kind of feeling your oats already. What was it about gags? Cause he, you know, he could have taken that as a, yeah, yeah. Okay. Athlete. That, that's cool. But you know, let me focus over here. But it sounds like he like almost like pulled you in, put the arm around you and said, okay, yeah, here's maybe why I did this. And here's, you're right. I think she could do this or here's why she can't because we still need to figure out this part of it. What was Gag's role? Cause you said this kind of changed your life. I, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing or not, but you use some pretty strong language there. Yeah, he definitely had an impact on all of his athletes. We all felt like we were his favorite, you know, huh. and there's 30 of us out there. And he just had a way of, of implementing the art of coaching and making you feel like you, he cared so much about you that you wanted to make him proud. And he also was, yes, he cared about performances, but he also cared about people. And he was, he developed me as a person. And that sometimes doesn't always happen when you have athletes and you have to remember that it, it's more about the person than it is about the performance. And he taught me that. So there were a lot of tidbits of things I learned in those couple of years under his leadership, but the most important part was it's important that athletes know that you care. They're going, you know, they're going to trust you a lot more when they know that you're invested in them as a person. And he, he showed me that he, he changed. I'm here because of him and all of my success since those early days on the farm team are, are because of him. I text him after every big performance unless he's already texted me. Um, and, and so, and oftentimes he's the first to text. So he's, he's still a big mentor of mine and someone who I aspire to really make proud to this day. It, he means a lot to me. And I think that I would love to have that same impact on my athletes that he had on me to be able to change the trajectory of someone's life is, is a powerful position to be in. What an amazing skill to have. You said that he makes every one of his athletes feel like they're his favorite, right? Uh, the word favorite means there is only one. <laughs> so what an amazing skill to make all of them. Uh, do you think, and I know you're working on that skill in your program, but you know, he was working with post-collegiate. So you're talking about calling 25 year olds and up at that point. Is it easier as you've gone through your career now, and we've still got some stages to go through here, but 
is it easier to do that with a 25 year old because they have real world experience and whatnot versus a college kid or even versus a, a younger kid? So the growth that I get to see from 18 to 23 is, is a lot different. The level of maturity that we all showed up in Palo Alto with because of the collegiate experience that we already had looks a little different than the kid we get now. But the amount of growth that I get to witness and be a part of here in these college age years, I think is greater than what, what you get to do as, as a professional coach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So our relationships were different because we're adults and we've surpassed you know, all of those college years, you've, you've went through a lot of those experiences and matured. So you're able to have these different conversations. Level of maturity is different, but I think the level of growth is, is larger here at the collegiate level. So I think the impact could be larger at this, at this point of people's lives. Yeah, I think, I think I agree with that, especially as someone who, you know, uh, fi I finally have gotten over my college years. Like I'm finally mature. It, at least my wife finally admitted it. That was my Christmas present. So it was nice to finally get that from the wife. Uh, so, okay. So gags is having this amazing, um, transformational, uh, relationship with you and the, and the rest of the team and says, you know, and, and your coach from Stanislaus says, Hey, you know, I'm going to administration. So what what's next? Did you immediately go to Stanislaus or, or, or did you continue running? What was our next step here? So I was running, there was a small private university, Menlo College, that had a small cross-country program, mostly made of wrestlers that were doing cross-country just to run. And I coached there for two years. So um, just, they only had cross-country. It was a very simple job. I did some other part-time tutoring and nannying, uh, but it got oh, my feet wait, wet. You, you said nanny and you weren't talking about the coaching of the wrestlers. You meant actual nanny. No, no. Uh, yeah. Okay, just sorry. outside, just in, in just to work, to do something. Yeah. But I coached at Menlo and it was fun. These were kids that had never run before. They were athletes in other sports and just to help them chase some goals. And we ended up winning, not winning. We ended up getting third at conference for for them which was really great because i think they had been at the bottom half or bottom of the conference in in previous years so just bringing that positive energy and getting kids fit and chasing dreams and it gave me a little bit of experience of just that coach athlete putting something on your resume and kim had not stepped into administration yet and so there wasn't that natural there were a couple other coaching jobs that were of interest to me but Gags had told me not to take them just to wait for, for my alma mater. And it was close to my parents' house. So the opportunity to move back home, being married, starting a family, knowing that all of that stuff was coming, it was on the horizon. So it was a good area to go back to, to, to do that. I had a lot of success at Stanislaus in the sense of just the community support that, that I received being in that small town, kind of a big fish in a small pond type of Thing. So I like the idea of going back there and giving back to, to the sport that gave me so much. Um, and so we just waited it out and then moved back to Turlock in 2007. It, to join Stanislaus. Yes. So did you start, uh, I assume you started off as an assistant coach? I started off as a head cross country coach, head men's and women's cross country coach, assistant track. Okay. So how, how is that? I'm always fascinated when someone gets into, a, you know, their first head cross country role. And I know you were the head coach at Menlo, but you know, we discussed, let's call it a non-traditional cross country program. Now you're in a more traditional 
cross country and track program at Stanislaus, uh, you know, there's all, there's so much more, like we never see it as athletes or assistant coaches until we're in the head coaching chair of all the other things that come along with that head coaching title, scheduling, budgeting, uh, administration talks, reviews, things like that. What was your biggest, as you took over Stanislaus, you, you, you waited, you, you listened to gags and didn't take other jobs. You finally got the alma mater job, which is extremely, I have a huge uh, place in my heart for people who coach at their alma mater. What were some of the surprises of like, oh man, I didn't realize as the head cross country coach, I have to do X and Y and Z especially at a division two, you don't realize all the behind the scenes stuff because here at division one. Now I have people that do a ton of the things that I had to do at Stanislaus It's booking the buses and the hotels and figuring out the travel schedule, running the meets, getting the volunteers for the meets, feeding the volunteers at the meets, all of this stuff. You're the meet director, but you're also the travel coordinator. You're the compliance person. You're also the fundraiser for your program. You're kind of doing it all, but it was so good for me to get thrown into that because you understand the operation of a program when you're doing it from the ground up. And that's the opportunity I had at Stanislaus was let me wear all these hats and figure out how all this works. It also gives you a sense of gratitude and appreciation for the people who make it possible for us to actually just coach. Um, so I, I, I loved doing all of that. I think it's a little bit where I got some of my not perfectionism but sort of just the ocd of wanting things a certain way because when you're doing them you just know exactly how you want them done and so now i have this clear vision of how i like to operate and how i want things to be because i was the one always doing them so i didn't realize and understand all of the behind the scenes stuff that happens with coaches i have a tremendous amount of respect for division two coaches. I think they are the hardest working coaches because they have to balance out and do all of these things to make it possible for their programs to have opportunities to succeed. So I'm grateful that I, I learned that. I think it made me the coach that I am. And it just was overwhelming. You work really hard. Um, and coaching is just a portion of what you do. So when I first got here, I don't want to fast forward, but when I first got to BYU, I was like, wait, what time do we set up for the home meet? And do we do, all? I was asking all these questions and they looked at me like, where did you come from? Um, we have people for that. And so it's, it's definitely different, but I am grateful for that. I, I love that I had the opportunity to learn and make mistakes, you know, you miss an entry, you, you'll never do it again, you know? Um, and so it was good. It was a good balancing act of figuring out what coaching is really about, the behind the scenes, the stuff that makes it possible for us to do our job now. And, and then just really figuring out how am I gonna get a buy-in from these athletes, right? I'm 28 years old, I think, or 29 years old. And it, as a head coach, it's a pretty young age. Um, and, and how am I going to get these kids to trust me? And I'm just going to believe in them. That's what I'm going to do. And as soon as they have success, the trust followed shortly after. So two things there I'd love to explore. One is I love that your perspective of all those hats that you had to wear it, you know, your takeaway from what it was, it makes me so thankful for the people who do that. Now I'm, I'm blessed to be at BYU where we have people to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm just so grateful for them. Not like, oh, thank God I don't have to do it. Like it's more of that, again, that grateful um, uh, persona, which I love. Uh, we, we learn uh, 
tend to learn more from our mistakes than we do sometimes our successes. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Out of all those hats that you were wearing while you were at Stanislaus as the you know first year and second year, your head coaching, can you think of like a was there a funny tie, a funny story of where you're like, oh man, I dropped the ball. Um, you know, you, you forgot to feed the volunteer, you know, the the officials at your home meet. Anything that kind of comes to mind? Well, I did miss our regional cross country entries. The deadline was pretty early. And so you get a fine if you don't, uh, you know, meet the entry deadline. I think the fine was $500 per gender per program. So that for my program was a huge crap moment. Um, I've never done that since then. I'm very, very careful about what the deadlines are and when they are. And, um, but going to the AD just, you know, like, yeah mess this one up and just owned it. You just have to own it. And, and that's the part of it. I, there's a lot of things I have made mistakes. I still make mistakes. It's how we learn, right? Mistakes are our best teacher. I really, really feel that way. Mistakes are your best teacher. And so to go through life and never make them is probably meaning that you're really not putting forth all your effort. So I still make mistakes all the time. I am not a fan of paperwork. I don't like any of that stuff. So I was always behind on my compliance paperwork. Back then, Mike, we had to turn in logs, weekly call logs for every recruit you contacted. And and so, yeah, I hated doing that stuff, right? Then there was no fun in that. It was just tedious paperwork. So there were many moments that, um, that I forgot uh, you know, a form or two. And luckily we've streamlined a lot of that. It's made it easier for us as coaches, as far as the, the paperwork trail, but the regionals, I, I won't forget that because a thousand dollar fine back then when my budget was very small, yeah, a thousand dollars, it was, it was a big hit. It was a really big hit. And so that was one of those moments where you'll never do that again. When you made that mistake, did you know that there was a um, a safety net, if you will, a thousand dollar safety net? Or when you initially found out or realized you missed the deadline, did you think my I messed up? My team can't compete now. No, I knew there was a late deadline or okay. something that you know yeah. you could go to. It was just the fear of going into your athletic director and saying like the single most important meet back then at Stanislaus <laughs> Regionals was a lot of times, oftentimes our national championship, right? Because you didn't have teams that were going to qualify. And so that was your, your biggest championship race. And the thing that you should be focused on that you walk in and you have to say, and, and I had a great athletic director when I left uh, Cal State Stanislaus, Mike Matoso, who just laughed at me. He's like, oh, you do make mistakes, you know? Um, and so I think that was good. It wasn't, it wasn't any harsh, uh, you know, punishment for, for making that mistake, but it was a good realization moment for me is always remember the important things. There's going to be all these tedious things that we have to do in, in our life. But the most important thing as coaches is our athletes. And you need to remember that, that that's the focus of what we're doing and don't get lost in the paperwork and the fundraising and all of the other stuff. Just make sure that you're taking care of your people. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you knew that there was a uh, safety backup. Cause I could only imagine your heart just dropping when you think, Oh, I, I just, screwed it up. They can't even compete. Like, oh my goodness. And then, you know, finding out, okay, you still can, but it's a thousand dollars. Like, oh, thank God, this would be the best thousand dollars we've ever paid. Yeah. I can't oh, remember man. if it was a thousand or 500, but yeah. I just remember thinking as I was walking into my AD's office, what if he just says, well, too bad you missed the deadline. Right. Oh, and right. so, and so I wasn't quite sure what that outcome was going to be, but he, he laughed out loud and <laughs> was like, ha you do make mistakes. And so uh, we kind of just 
moved on from there. As soon as he laughed, you had to be like, oh, okay, because I know he's not cruel. He's not laughing at me and I can't compete. It's like, okay, he's good. We're, we'll move on and it'll never happen again. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that you said there about, you know, being a 28 year old head coach and the athletes being, you know, let's call it on average eight years younger than you. And you're not that much older now, so maybe this is a question to ask you 20 years from now, but you know, the, the role of age in comparison to your athletes, like there's always these um, stereotypes, if you will, right? Like the older coaches and, you know, there's some amazing ones out there. Actually, you know, you have an amazing one right there at BYU and Ed Eyestone. Uh, and, and I'm not exactly sure how old that is, but I know he is not in his twenties anymore. I love you, Ed. Uh, but, you know, so there's these conversations uh, for coaches of Ed and Lance Harder. I'm thinking, you know, guys that are just, you know, that are near the end of their careers, but are killing it that they, you know, they've lost touch. They, they can't talk to an 18 or let's say a 17 year old. Cause I got to recruit, right. Uh, they're, they're out of touch, but then, you know, you think of a 25, 28 year old a coach and you're like, yeah, okay. So you may relate to them. Uh, you know what TikTok is maybe right. But you're so short in the tooth, like you have no experience to, to, to help them through their career as 28 years old. So what was your like method of madness, if you will, to connect with them? Was it more of the, Hey, we're, you know, I just got done with what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I even, uh, made it to the, you know, the post elite level, or was it more of like, Hey, no, I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. Fo you know, follow me and we'll work together and go to the promised land. If you will. It was definitely the latter. I think I wore polos and just wanted to look older than I was, which is not the case now, right? Um, you won't catch me dead in a polo, but yeah, I just wanted to bring that level of professionalism. And, you know, some of those athletes that were finishing up at Stanislaus were maybe in that next recruiting class when I was leaving. And so you aren't that far removed. Uh, and so I think my advice for someone that's just leaving the running world and entering the professional coaching world is there is an importance to have that level of professionalism to separate yourself from, from the athlete. I think you almost have to go. And I did, I almost went too far the other way, which those athletes will say you were so strict back then you, you were so just disciplined and, you know, everything was, you had to be on time and just, yeah, I, I held them to a high standard, but I also held myself to a high standard and I didn't want to go in and just be friends with them where now maybe the relationships have evolved, especially because the age gap for me with my young women now is larger, but there is more of a maternal I wouldn't say friendship, but the friendship, it evolves to a friendship. As my athletes leave, I would say they're some of my closest friends as they leave college, but, but there's a little bit more of a connection that's able to occur now because I'm not trying to show, Hey, I'm a coach. You're the athlete. And we have to identify these roles. And I really wanted to prove that. I mean, oftentimes I would go to meets and people would say, Oh, are you checking in for this event? And it's like, no, I'm the coach. And that's why I never dressed like athletes. I wore the polo and I tried to really separate myself as I entered that coaching world. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so how many years at Stanislaus and then why, why leave? So nine years at Stanislaus, no plans to ever leave. Loved what I was doing. Loved the impact I was making. I transitioned, I believe it was 2013 into the director role of cross country and track and field. Okay. And it's important maybe to point out, you met your husband at Stanislaus during your undergrad or during coaching? During undergrad, he played okay. basketball. We so, were friends for quite some time. When I went on to train in Palo Alto, he entered his 
professional world of accounting and we just kept in touch. So, so, uh, Stanislaus so he was familiar. Means yeah, a great a deal. Place. Yeah. Okay. It's a special place for both of us. And we had great memories there as, as athletes. And, and did you say, I'm sorry, back, sorry to cut you off again. I'm, I'm a terrible host. Did you say you became the director of Stanislaus, like track and field cross country, the whole nine? Yeah. And, and I want to say, I don't know if this is actually correct, but during that time, that wasn't a title that it was mostly just head track or head cross country. If the D2 level, that director title wasn't something that was common. I believe Kathleen Rasky had told me, Hey, you're the first female D2 director. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, and, and I loved it. I love what I was doing. I love the impact I was making. I had great kids that were coming to college for the first time, experiencing, you know, graduating uh, and just, yeah, the impact was phenomenal. And it was a community and I had no plans to ever leave. I was a young mom, a young mom with, you know, small children. It was a great place to be able to have a good balance. Uh, I, I don't even know if you call it balance, but compromise <laughs> of the mom and the coach and, um, I got an email in the summer, I think it was right after 2016 Olympic trials from Ed Eyestone. We were actually on a family vacation driving back from Santa Barbara and I opened my email and it was Ed mentioning that the women's job at BYU was open and he would really like if I applied or if I should, you know, if I had any interest in it. And it was almost comical. My in-laws live in Utah. so. It's like, oh, well, I guess I could go interview and visit the in-laws. And, you know, I, I had no plans to come, especially to BYU. I, I was a little bit of a BYU fan because my father-in-law is an alum from BYU. So I was familiar with it. Um, did never, you know, Ed and I met at an indoor meet in Seattle. We happened to be staying at the same hotel and we ate breakfast together at the same table down in the lobby. And we kept in touch at a couple meets that year. He would see me coaching and we had a kid in the semifinals of the Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. So when you're a D2 coach and you've got a kid from Stanislaus in the semifinals of the Olympic trials, I think you naturally get introduced to, to people that are also there doing the same thing. And we were coaching at the same time at the trials, but I really didn't know him that well. I wouldn't say we were friends. I just knew who he was. I actually thought he was a dad when I first met him. Uh, he's so laid back, you know? Um, but yeah, we just, got that email and I kind of knew who he was. I thought, okay, well, I could go interview and, and check it out. I had no plans to leave. I loved what I was doing. There was never, uh, I think people have career goals, you know, in, in coaching. It's like, oh, I aspire to be a D1 coach or I want to climb the ladder to get this better position. And, and that wasn't me. I was really content with what I was doing, which was impacting lives. That's always been the forefront of, of what my goal is in life is this, let me empower people. And, and impact their lives, be a mentor for them. I always say everyone can list five people that have impacted their life, right? We, we, we can all, we all have that. I wanna be one of the five in, in people's lives. And it doesn't matter what level you're doing that at D3, NAIA, D2, D1. You just want the opportunity to, to help change someone's life. And, and so I was doing that. I was really fulfilled, but I came and interviewed here and something just, just the opportunity to come be at a place like BYU. And I don't know, there, there was a feeling I got when I came halfway through the interview, it 
became a little bit of a recruiting process, I feel like. It kind of shifted, you know, it was less of an interview and more of a, how can we get you here? And I called my husband on the way home from, from Provo going to the airport, like, I think we're gonna move. And he was like, what? Did they offer you the job? I was like, no, but they're going to. You just had that feeling. I had that feeling. And I had a feeling like I need to be here. Like I could do something here. And that was so hard. It was hard to call those kids that I, I can get choked up talking about it now that were family at Cal State Stanislaus to have to call them, you know, at the end of July, early August and say, yeah, you're reporting in two weeks to cross country camp, but I'm no longer going to be your coach. Kids that you recruited. You know, those are hard. That's a hard thing. I think the hardest thing when you take a new position anywhere, what, no matter how great that opportunity is, is to say goodbye to the position you're leaving, um, especially when you're doing it on good terms. And so that was really hard for me in my coaching. There was a lot of tears that summer of, but I just felt like I needed to be at BYU, that there was something here for me that was magical, that was waiting to happen. And I was going to be able to have an impact larger than what I was already having and took the leap of faith and came in fall of 2016. I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. You talk about something magical. You know, there's a lot of things at BYU uh, that are great. Uh, one of them being Ed Eyestone. So Ed's interviewing you and you're starting to think like, oh, okay, I get to work under this guy. Like I get to learn from him. That, that could be magical. Uh, the indoor facility, have, having an indoor facility, uh, you know, that, that could be magical. Obviously the facilities, uh, the school and the resources, heck, the mountains that it looks like you could physically just touch them. Feels like they're that close. It's amazing. What can you pinpoint what the magic was or, or and like I said, it's so unfair question, right? So I'll give you the cop out and you can say it was a combination of everything. But well, it really wasn't Mike. Um, it was the women, the future women and the current women that were going to come through the program. It, it was for them. They had been really successful in the late nineties and early two thousands and hadn't seen that success in over a decade. Hmm. Saw an opportunity to help bring these women back to national relevance and to change their lives and impact them while doing that. And that looked like a great challenge for me and naturally felt like the next step. And I never knew there was a next step. You know, it wasn't what I was working towards, but the opportunity opened and I felt like I was the right fit. I was the right person to be here. And you were not looking. It wasn't like you had resumes going out. This was uh, Ed had met you. I love that you. What a great um, lesson about being open to others uh, for for both of you. By the way, the, you might think the lesson is like, oh, look, this D two coach because she had breakfast with this D one coach. Look what happened. I, I say it the other way around. Ed could have easily not had breakfast with you. Ed is a highly accomplished Division one, <clears throat> amazing athlete. He, he could have been like, yeah, okay, well, whatever. But he he had breakfast with you. Remembered you. There was only one chair open in the lobby at breakfast. <laughs> he was stuck and with it was, you. <laughs> it was right across from me. So I don't know if he really had. He didn't choose that. That as he sat down, I just started talking to him. Like, but how was, are things in Happy Valley? But he had to be open to it, right? Yeah. He easily. Uh, well, I could be wrong in saying this. He easily could have forgotten you. I'm not sure that's actually true. <laughs> now getting to know you a little bit, Dolce. But you you know what I'm saying? Like he's very busy. He knows a lot of people. It easily could have been like, oh yeah, I had breakfast with some the, the Cal State Santa loss or something like that right but like it, it stuck there was a little a little memory kernel that stuck in there and then he saw you at a meet and he saw you at trial like I love that that opportunity opened up for something that has become that we'll get to here in a little bit uh really special so I, I love that just being open 
to people, regardless of their status, regardless of their division one, division two, regardless if they're 60 years old or 28 years old, like, like, I, lo I love that. That's a great lesson for us in everything we do, whether it's coaching our athletes, uh, when they're, you know, out in the community, that's just a, a really good lesson there. Really good. And I think as a, as a young coach, you remember that. You remember the people who don't pig you as, oh, you're just a D2 coach. And I try not to do that now, especially where I'm at, is I'll answer the phone for any coach that calls and wants advice or, you know, a little bit of mentorship. But there were coaches that I remember that did do that, right? That were the people that were like, oh, you coach there. I'm not really going to associate with you. But you also remember the ones that open arms, let you into their meets and treated you with just the same amount of respect as they would any other colleague. And so you tend to remember that, uh, especially now. I, I definitely remember that. In my last couple of years at Stanislaus with coaching, people had mentioned, oh, there's this job, this assistant coaching job at Duke or this assistant coaching job here. We're going to forward your name. Is that okay? I was like, oh yeah, sure. But I had no plans to leave. And it's comical because some of those places never called. They had my name, but they never called. And I love to, to see those coaches now and remind them like, don't you wish you would have called? Um, but, but yeah, it, it's. Do you, you remember funny. in our pre-interview, I said, I like to challenge our, our, our guests sometimes. Let's here, hear it. Here we are. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm always fascinated by this thought process. And I'm, by the way, this is not me holier than thou that I've never done this, but you hear this a lot with uh, uh, authors of books. They, they put every rejection letter up on their wall so that when their book gets published, see, told you, right? I hear this with coaches, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so didn't call me, blah, 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 didn't call me. I never got a call from here, blah, 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 blah. I'll show them one day. Here's my challenge. Thank goodness they didn't, because you wouldn't be where you are today. Like your path, it's, it's amazing when we look back, right? Because perspective and hindsight and 2020 and all those other nice little catchphrases. But there's times in our lives where we, we have these little decisions, these little forks in the road. And sometimes they seem very innocent, right? Like I'm going to go to BYU or I'm not. That's a fairly, I mean, it's a big move, but it's a fair, like it weren't like, it wasn't like you were out of a job. So it's, you know, you still had very much comfort in Stanislaus. Now you can look back and go, oh man, look what has happened in the six years that I went this side of the road. <laughs> like, it's amazing. My family is better for it. My, our program's better for it. I'm a better coach in person for, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's amazing. So like it, my challenge to you and anybody else listening that does this, instead of, uh, and I know you don't carry like, you know, I'm not going to ask you to move your camera over and see if there's like this dartboard of all these other schools. <laughs> but uh, so I know you're not holding a grudge. But to me, the posture and you're, you're such a, a great example of gratitude. I would rather I, I'm going to challenge you to look at those schools that didn't call you and be like, thank you. Thank you for not calling me. Thank you for rejecting me if there is a job you applied for. Right. Thank you for not calling me and offering me a job that I had to move because I wouldn't be where I am today, affecting the young people that I'm affecting today, the way I am today, because of you. Thank you for, oh, I'm so thankful that you didn't call me <laughs> such and such university and such and such college. There's my challenge. That's all. Okay, we're, we're done. I'll, I'll, I'll step off my soapbox now. I like it. I like and it. And let's get back on your soapbox because it's amazing. So uh, you go to BYU and I have been to BYU once in my entire life. It was about five years ago. I, I think, and now that I'm thinking about it, I think I did pass you in the hallway as I was meeting with Ed and Mark and those guys. You were brand new and the distance coach. 
So I did judge you. I was like, yeah, she don't want anything to do with the Gill guy. What, what is she going to buy? I, I got spikes for your shoes. That's about it, right? Maybe if you need some steeple barriers, I'll get you taken care of, right? Uh, but you ain't ordering hammer cages, high jump pits, things like that. But uh, I was blown away by the beauty of the campus. Like, holy cow. I, 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 I said it earlier about like the mountains. Like, I feel like I could just touch them there, right there. So what have you done in these six years with all of this magic, as you put it, when during the interview process? H how did it start? What were the struggles? Uh, and what were some of the more immediate wins? Well, the program was in a state, I think for me coming in, I brought a level of excitement. And so it was really not a struggle. I don't think I had to get people to buy in. That's kind of one of the first things you have to do as a coach, you bringing your new culture to it and this new energy and excitement. And you're often wondering, are these athletes going to be excited by this or are they going to wish it was the way it was before, right? You're, Everyone the, struggles. you're, the, you're the stranger coming in. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and everyone struggles with change. Change can be hard. And I acknowledge that coming in change was hard for me. I was really vulnerable with the athletes at that first cross country camp that, that this was also hard for me. My family packed up. I was a California kid and had lived there for 38 years. And then to pack up and move to Utah, you don't do that unless you feel like there's something special you can do. And so I think the women were so open to the energy that I was bringing to the program and we experienced success immediately. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, there wasn't growing pains from really the performance standpoint. And anytime a kid is running better than they've ever run, they immediately trust you. It's amazing how that works. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, um, it was great. We, we were ranked, I think 27th preseason ranking and we're top 10. We were 10th at the NCAA championships. So it was a storybook season for my first season at a division one program to finish in the top 10 with a team that some years prior had not made the meet. So it was so insecurity is a real thing. And, you know, you're coming from a division two background where you had success as an athlete and then division two coach where you had success, but division one, right. Uh, quote unquote, the big stay, whatever you want to call it. But for sure, as a collective, the athletes are better, like, you know, depth wise, right. Um, you can have arguments on the top one person in each division and, and whatnot, but for depth wise, division one is, is got the depth on it. Right. How did it make you feel coming in 20? First of all, being ranked 27th, you had to think, well, that's pretty, I got a pretty good squad. I mean, that's, that's not shabby being 27th in the country in division one, uh, you, you're a good squad. Um, but then you finished top 10. Like, was there, a, was there a feeling of validation or was it more of just like, Oh, well, that's what the job is. Like, did you, did you get, were you able to take a sense of happiness and, and pride from that? If you go back and watch the finish of that 2016 championship race, when we realized that we were 10th, that level of excitement is going to be similar to what we experienced in 2019 being second, 2020 winning it. And this last, it, it was, yes, it, this is why we do this. And it was great. I think that that proved to all of us, not just me as a coach, but to the athletes as well, is we can do this. And I made some promises in those fresh, that first year with those freshmen, the Courtney Waymans of, Hey, we're going to chase the podium. Like before you're done, we're going to do that. And what right did I have as a coach to even make that statement? Nothing but faith. You, you took the question right out of my mouth. 
I was yeah. like, exactly right. Yeah. Faith. I have no other, there was no other option for me. I came here for that purpose to, to try to win and do it the right way with the right women at the right place. And I feel like BYU has, is definitely the right place and we've got the right women. And I just started this journey with these women and I was going to help them reach their ceiling or surpass it, whatever that meant. And I had no idea, Mike, I'm in this role just completely unaware of what these athletes are even capable of doing, what their potential looks like, but just believing in them. Hmm. Like, let's see how far that gets us. And I was really confident in my X's and O's. D2 taught me that if you, if you can be at a D2 coach where you're or a D2 level and have these all Americans and get kids to the trials and, you know, chase titles and all American honors with very limited resources and hardly any scholarship hmm. with kids who came to you with not great PRs, it, your confidence is built from that. So I knew the workouts would work. I was never questioning that. I actually didn't question. I didn't give myself any other option. It's like, we're going to do this. And that was just blinders on. Doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. I, I don't, these are women that would get on the line and they would see programs like Stanford and Oregon and Arkansas. And there was an intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is I got to build these women to be so confident that they don't care who they're stepping on the line next to. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that you see some of that confidence and swag that the BYU women now have. It, it came from those early years from those women from the 2016 team and the 2017 team. So those were the things that we focused on, but I look back at the, promises I made and the things I said and think, wow, okay. I must've been fairly confident, but yeah. it was just safe. When, when did the uh, note writing start uh, coming into play? I've done it ever since. Uh, I mean, it's been over a decade. I did it for every kid at Stanislaus before every race. Yeah. I, okay. I've done it my pretty much my entire coaching career. Oh, no, that's interesting. I thought you were going to say something like, oh, yeah, it started when I got to BYU or it started after that cross country season. Like I was trying to find the next thing. This has been a, a consistent. Yeah, I, when I got into coaching, I remembered some of the things that made me feel really good as an athlete. And I, I told you it was something that was really important to me. And so that started early, early, probably in my first I want, I can't remember exactly. I, I want to say it probably started in my first or second year of coaching ever um, at, at Stanislaus. So that's something that I've kept with me. And, and I don't think I'll ever not be able to do it now, even if I didn't want to. I say it'll be, it'll be hard for you to stop. Yeah. 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 Cause that first meet that you don't do it, they're gonna be like, hey, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> Are you mad at us? Like what's going on? Yeah. Uh, so talk to me about what, what are, you know, BYU is a, a special place for a lot of reasons. Um, some may say positive and some may say negative. Uh, have you found any challenges with being there at BYU in regards to recruiting? Um, you know, you have a wide berth of recruiting, like BYU is a national brand. Uh, you don't have to worry about just sticking a hundred miles from campus type of thing. Uh, what would have been some of the challenges and uh, advantages in regards to BYU? The challenges are that this is not a fit for everyone. And I have to embrace who we are and the values and standards that we have here are really unique. And I understand that that's not a fit. And in the beginning to get no's was, was tough is you would recruit these kids and they either wanna to come to BYU or they don't. And it was either from birth or not. And you have to just build the brand in the sense of the BYU run for her. We had to build the brand of our program mm. and who we are and be really proud of that. So I 
yeah, there's challenges because it's not a fit for everyone, but that's actually not a challenge. It's a blessing in disguise because if someone comes here and they're not a fit for your program, they're not going to be successful because you can have all of the resources in the world. You can have the best training, be at altitude, majestic mountains, best coach. You can have all of those things. But if you're not happy and things aren't clicking for you as a person outside the sport, it's going to be really hard to show up and be the best version of yourself every single day. And I've realized that. So there are some people that just this won't be a fit for them and it has to be. It's okay. But the the advantages are the people who embrace who we are and are proud of it and live the standards and uphold the values. They're, they're going to surpass their potential here. They're going to do great things because they're in the right environment and they're proud of it. That's a great point. It amazes me sometimes coaches who uh, want to sugarcoat some of their uniquenesses and challenges of their universities just to get a kid in, whether it's a, a service academy, it's like, yeah, you're gonna have to do PT or, you know, wear a uniform, etc. Whether it's things at BYU, other every school has their own little thing. There's no one school that doesn't, by the way, no, no school is heaven on earth, except for my alma mater at Troy University. That is heaven on earth. I haven't mentioned my, my alma mater in quite a while. I feel very bad. Uh, I was on a good streak for a while, Dajit. I was like probably 40 episodes in a row. I was somehow able to work my universe, my son's name, we're going to get to your kids here in a second, by the way. Uh, but my son's name is Troy. So that tells you how I, I loyal you are. You, I love that. I think got, you've got two beautiful kids. I'm willing to bet none of them are named Stanislaus. No, not, Stan, not Stanny, no, Stan, none, no, no. none yeah. of that. But I, I admire the loyalty. Mm -hmm. That is good. Mm -hmm. And I think every athlete, when you finish your collegiate career should have that sense of loyalty to your alma mater. There should be a connection and a bond and a level of pride that you feel for the place you represented. That's so right. thank yeah. you. That's all I was looking for, Dilji. Thank you for that. Uh, but what I was saying was, you know, the co coaches who sugarcoat their uh, uniquenesses, their, their perceived negative uniquenesses just to get a kid in. And then that kid gets there and well, the truth comes out pretty quick, right? Like maybe first day of campus, uh, the, the truth comes out. And now with today's transfer portal, it's like, well, well, the kid's just going to leave. I mean, it's, it's it's super easy now. So to be able to kind of embrace the uniquenesses and challenges and positives that BYU has helps you bring in the right kids and they stay for longer. <laughs> you have less issues with them. They're happier, et cetera, right? You, you brought up a, a good thing, and, I, and I, I'm glad you did because I, I had it in my notes and forgot about it because I see it on your social media. I'm huge on social media. I love it. I'm on it 24-7. Uh, on a lot of your posts, you have that hashtag run for her. T tell me more about that. How'd that come about? And, and why, why, why is that on every one of your posts? <laughs> we were at cross country camp. I want to say it was my second year here. And I knew we needed to come up with some sort of slogan or something that identified us. And we were thinking of all these things. And I, I'm big on running for that little girl that fell in love with the sport, right? I, I talk about that a lot. I talk about the her a lot. We all have it. Think of even just myself. I'm doing so many things for 10-year-old me, right? To make that girl proud. And, and in my journey, I try to constantly be the woman I needed as a girl. And so as a, we were thinking of all these things, we just came up with BYU run for her. And, and the her is is not the women now it's it's the her the, the little girl that fell in love with running whenever that happened and so when you do that when you run for her it takes 
you're just running to make her proud. It takes all the pressure of the now off, right? Because if all of us look back at the younger version of ourselves and think how proud would she be at what we're doing, what we're chasing, how we're lining up, how we're showing up. And, and I think as long as we continue to show up for that her, that's, that's what's important. And so that is where that came from. And it's kind of branded our program. It's mm -hmm. unique to us. And so, yeah. So I told you I was going to get to your kids and I don't necessarily want to talk about them individually, although they're not named Stanislaus. That was an important distinction there. Uh, but I was interested, you know, our roles as our, as our roles change in life, it affects other roles, right? So like when I became a father, so I have an 11 and an eight year old, how old are you two, if you don't mind me asking? 13 and 10. Okay. So yeah, right, right. You know, you're, you're, I'm right behind you. <laughs> you're going through things. I, you're going to have to teach me some lessons because I got to know what's coming up because it's happening a mile a minute. It's amazing. Uh, but when I became a father, I became a different husband to, to my wife. Like uh, th that role changed. I became honestly a, a different salesperson here, a better, a different teammate uh, to people here at Gill, a different friend to my best friends and things like that. How did and maybe not at all, uh, did becoming a mother, how did that affect how you coached? I know you just coach women now, but you've coached men and women. So not necessarily for a gender, although that could be the story. Uh, but how did becoming a mother change how you coached? Every role that we get to do in life helps us evolve. And I believe motherhood for me has strengthened my role as a coach. And these are someone's kids. We get to coach someone's kids. And I always look at my own, it just changes how you view kids mm. and the love you have. It is, yeah, I think motherhood has helped me be a better coach. I don't, I'm not the coach that you see with the kid on the hip. I've never been that coach. I've always tried to separate the two, um, but they definitely have strengthened each other's roles. I think I'm a better mom because I'm a coach. And I think I'm a better coach because I'm a mom. And that may not be the case for everyone, but parenting has definitely changed my mindset in, in how I view these young women and young men that are in our program. Is there someone's kids and you just want to see them do great things. So you want to believe the, in them because you want someone to believe in your kids. One of the goals that we have here on the podcast is to bring as a, immense value, as much value as we can to those who choose to listen to us. Uh, this, I don't, this can't be my first opportunity. Maybe it's the first opportunity I'm taking, but I'm going to take a step back here. So Diljeet is someone who is, you know, gone through and is going through the coaching journey uh, and a mother, you know, there is this, and I'm probably speaking way out of turn here, but there is this we're having maybe a hard time of getting women into coaching uh, because of the immense things that are uh, thrown at women, right? I remember during one of the coaches collab Zoom meetings, uh, one young lady talked about what she called the, the mom tax or something, but the, basically the mom, if she works, regardless if it's coaching or, you know, private uh, entity, but also comes home and has another job, you know, it's, it's traditionally another job of, you know, cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids and things like that. What advice, I'm very awkwardly asking this question, by the way, <laughs> thank you for your patience with this one. Uh, but what advice would you have for women who maybe want to go into coaching, but are fearful of, well, does that mean I can't have a family or I hear about, you know, you're going to be at 10 different institutions in 10 years. How do you have a stability of life? How do you have a family and 
do this incredibly time-consuming yet important job of coaching as well. What, what advice might you have for someone who's thinking about coaching or thinking about getting out of coaching because they think that's the only way maybe to start a family as a female? What, what words might we you have there? We see that a lot. And I, I get the question often about how do we get more women into coaching, into this profession? And I don't necessarily think it's about getting more women into coaching. I think it's more, how do we retain these women that come into coaching? Because you will see a large number under the age of 30 that have gotten into coaching. And then they do feel like at some point they have to choose between coaching and motherhood. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Here's the reality. It is hard to coach while you're a mom and mom while you're a coach. Both of those things are, are difficult to do, but they can be done. And you're seeing women now that have that are currently doing them, right? You have to see her to be her. And you're, you're able to see those women in coaching, Lori Hennis. And that's why I was really excited about the success she's having to see another coach that's a mom that's having success is, is good for all of us. And I think that that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take more women that work through the hard parts of it. And then those younger women that get into it, they're gonna have more of those mentors that, that are doing it. I, I never thought it was something that was odd. Kim Deist was my college coach. She was a mom. And so to me, it wasn't foreign to have children and be a coach, but for many athletes, it may be. You may only have had a male coach. You may never have seen a female coach that's a mom that's balancing or compromising in both ways. Um, and so I think the more we see, the more you'll retain those women that are starting their career, but at some point feel like they have to choose. You said you have to see her to be her. Uh, another way of putting that is representation matters. Seeing that it's a possible helps make it possible. Uh, I'm reminded of, we had Amy Deem, the head coach at University of Miami on the podcast uh, last season in November, I believe, or December. And uh, her high school coach was a female. And so like when I asked her about like, you know, you went to Miami and quickly became the head coach. Like you, you didn't really have any role models. And she's like, Oh yeah, my high school coach was a few, like, there was no, like, there was no, um, like there was no ever thought of there can't be a, a, as, a, as a female, I can't be a coach or a head coach because well, that's what I had in high school. Like, Oh yeah. Women can be coaches. Men can be coaches. So I'm going to become a coach, you know? So it was, it's just interesting, the role of representation and what it can do for, uh, people of, uh, you know, underserved or underfunded, um, uh, populations, right. Whether it's, women or uh, people of color, et cetera, but uh, you got to see her to be her. We got to find a way to make that more. It's like, you know, you got to see them to be them. I don't know, but we, we got it for all of it. I love it. That's good. That's good. Well, okay. Uh, thank you for making my very awkward question. <laughs> Seemed like it actually worked. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I just really hope that, you know, people again, representation matters. They can hear that, uh, you know what, uh, I'm glad it's not easy, Dilji, meaning like, I'm glad like, you know, you, you're very open and authentic. They're like, Hey, it's hard. It's hard being mom. It's hard being coach. It's hard being coach mom. Uh, you know, you got to work through it. And, uh, seems like you have a pretty good partner with your husband. And even though he's an accountant, which that can't be the most exciting job, you have the exciting job in this relationship. That's, that's for sure. So, uh, let's get to, as we wrap up today, uh, this really, we keep using the word magical, right? I, I don't want to overuse words, but uh, this past almost a year ago now, when you're listening to this, so March of 2021, I got to get my years right. They, so I guess we got to go back to fall of 20. They, we canceled cross country season because of, of COVID. 
and the decision was made that nationals was going to move to correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, Dilji. Remember, I'm not the distance guy here, so I don't know anything. But if I remember correctly, cross country nationals was going to go to Monday after indoor nationals, which is Friday, Saturday, if I remember correctly. It's yep. still to actually it might have moved to a three day meet for for this one, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday to spread it out. I think we, yeah, the, well, the distance, the, the track events were Friday, Saturday. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. They just moved some pre. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Got it. So, uh, going into the indoor season, uh, coaches, distance coaches specifically, but uh, all head track, uh, coaches had decisions to make, right? Like, so are you going to double up kids that that was allowed that was legal, I guess, or whatnot. Um, uh, are you going to put all your eggs in the basket into indoor? Are you going to put all your eggs in the basket in the cross country? So you had a lot of decisions to make. Uh, you in your program made what seems from the out, you know, from the outside looking in uh, a very like we're going to spread our eggs out <laughs> everywhere. And so you ran indoor nationals. Uh, I'm going to have you give us a quick recap here of, of the highlights, but also ran a team at nationals that Monday. Uh, if I remember correctly, not a single girl double. These were all completely different athletes. Uh, so give us highlights. How did indoor go and how did cross country go with that set up there? So can we, can we go back to the previous March when indoor nationals was canceled? Okay. There were yep. seniors on that team that were getting ready to run the DMR or the individual events mm -hmm. that that was their last indoor season, Whitney and Anna. Um, and they only had cross country left. Likewise, there were women who had run cross country in their senior year that only had indoor track left, Courtney and Olivia. So some of the decisions were made for me based on just eligibility. Okay. Okay. And, you know, we came up with this idea of we're going to win the weight when, when everything was canceled, it's like, let's win the weight. How are we going to do that? So we, we made a schedule in cross country fall of 2020 let me make sure I heard you win the weight, like the, win the weight. Yeah. Like the weight, because here, Mike, when everything was canceled back in indoor of, you know, COVID 2020, March, right. 2020, everything right. was canceled. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know at that point, yes, hopefully cross country season was going to happen, but we weren't sure we were in this yeah. global pandemic. Gotcha. No one had any direction of where anything was going. And so as a coach, I was like, we have to win the weight, which basically meant we don't know when our next opportunity is going to be, but we need to be ready. We need to make sure that we're doing all of the things to basically stay excited and stay fit. And I came up with a season of 20 fall of 2020. We had a basketball mile. We had, um, you know, it went, Whitney and Anna got the basketball mile world record it, it here. We had a 5k that we ran on the track. We had the, the Taylor uh, twilight meet where, you know, some of them ran the Halloween mile and some ran the four by 800. We did all of these things in fall because these women needed something to be excited about. They needed something to look forward to. So competition wasn't foreign to these women as they entered, you know, Jan when they came back in January, we had, we put on a uniform, even though we were competing with ourselves, we were still competing. We had PRs that we were walking away from. So there was a level of excitement. We also had a unique situation in that we have a very deep roster. So there are a lot of bodies here. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to pick 
naturally it was picked for me. These women only have indoor, these women only have cross country and I'm going to build around that. So when we first came back in January, you know, women want to do everything, right? They want to run indoor, they want to run cross country. They, you can't have them choose they want to do it all. And so first day back, we were sitting in the bleachers and I just called out these are the women who will be on the indoor track team and just listed them. These are the women who will be running cross country listed them. And we separated two teams. We never worked out together. We had different practices. We had different weightlifting. We really operated as two separate programs. We had the depth to do it. Mm -hmm. And we also had eligibility that basically determined who was doing what on, on the top end with the Courtney and Whitney and Anna and Olivia Hoy. So that made it somewhat easy for a coach like me to say, here's where we're going to focus and then build around that. If someone had a better opportunity in indoor than they did in cross country, if they were going to be my number seven runner in cross country, but they could maybe make the indoor mile, Kate Hunter, for example, she's going to focus on indoor. And that that's just what we did. We have a good middle distance here, a, a little middle distance powerhouse with a couple 800 milers. Those, those women on a course like Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is the death of death of all courses, um, they're not going to fare well on that type of course. So it was easy for me to just focus on qualifying them in the indoor mile and focusing on the DMR. And so that how, was how we did it. How much input did you allow the athletes? It seems like obviously you said there were some that were set up because of eligibility and stuff like that, but there had maybe some were um, no brainers, the 800 meter. But and by the way, I'm going to correct myself because you're, you're doing a fantastic job here. Here's leadership right here. You keep calling them women. And earlier I caught my, I just I noticed I caught myself when I said, and no girls doubled up. These are yeah. women. That's right. I'm going to correct myself here. I don't, I don't stop your tweeting right now. If you're listening, I, I corrected <laughs> myself. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Um, so there's an 800 meter woman who you're like, yeah, yeah, she's, you know, that's a duh. She's, she's going to study indoor. There had to be some that were decision makes. How much uh, input did you allow from the athletes, if at all? I didn't. I just made the teams. I think a kid who's a 10K runner is going to fare well on a Stillwater course, you know, and help the cross-country team. And they they bought into it because I didn't let them decide. It was like, this is what I think is best for us. And we really went into it as an us is we have some, we have an opportunity to do something really special in indoor and in cross country. And that's, and this is going to be your role. And they embraced it. They loved, they cheered for each other. It, it built our team up in a way that nothing else ever has. It was actually hard this cross country season when we were just focusing on cross country because the women did so well at cheering each other on and building off of each other's successes and using that energy from indoor, what we did at indoor nationals was a huge motivation factor for those women in cross country, you know? Um, and so I was really proud of who we became through this whole process, through all of the shutdowns and all of the setbacks and the letdowns and the disappointments we came out and, and made a really big statement that weekend in March. So what I was getting there is just about a week or two ago, we had Dr. Ray Bard on the podcast. He wrote a book called lead like a pro. We talked about leadership. He's, he's a basketball guy. I don't know what I was doing, having a basketball guy on, but we talked about leadership and the, he did this huge PhD study on different styles and really the whole gist of what he is after. And it's 
fascinating. That's why we had him on the podcast was your perceived leadership versus your actual leadership. And, you know, he boils down to five kind of primary leadership styles, transformative, um, I think transactional, um, autocratic, democratic, and then laissez-faire. And it seems when you're describing those five, like there's a couple like, oh, well, those aren't very good, like transactional. I don't want to be a transactional coach. And oh, autocratic, I'm going to put my fist down and I'm going to make the rules. And I don't want to be that kind of coach. However, none of them were wrong. It was how you use them and which ones are your primary and how you you sprinkle in the other ones. So I love that example of, uh, I'm going to have to ask Dr. Raybar to listen to this and make sure I, I nailed this. But it sounds like that was a very autocratic style from you of like, yeah, I didn't ask the the women. Um, some, some decisions were made and some were duh were definitely you know the 800 meter example but then i'm gonna decide the rest of them and not only that the because results don't always make the decisions right right but the the results occurred and, and that that check mark that said you did right but also the buy-in from the kids said oh you know thank goodness she <laughs> she she was the coach she 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 was the coach she did the coach she she told us what to do and that worked out like they you got buy-in from that as well so i just i just wanted to point that out that you know if you listen to that podcast with dr raid and you're like yeah i would never want to be with an autocratic uh, uh coach first of all you got to make sure that's not your actual leadership like maybe you think you're not doing that and you are but that it actually like there are pro- times and and uh examples where that's the right style of leadership. So I, I think I uh, appreciate you, you know, being open with that. So uh, for those of us who don't know all the, give us the results. Tell us this. I mean, Friday, Saturday, Sunday was your off day. Monday was cross country nationals. These four days, tell us how these women, I got it right this time, uh, how they performed with this uh, unique setup that you did. Well, we went into that championship weekend knowing that we were prepared. That that was the first part of it. There was a level of confidence in just the marks that we were putting up and, you know, we hadn't competed in quite some time. So women were PRing left and right. And that was super exciting. So there was a level of just excitement. And prior to these women stepping on the line for the DMR, a different set of women were going to chase a title and the whole thing gets canceled in Albuquerque, right? So these women feel like they're getting an opportunity to finish something that the women before them started. And there was just this level of, let's do this. Let's let's show them what crazy can do. Like, it was crazy. What we were doing in that season was absolutely crazy, especially looking back at it now. Um, and they were confident. They were so confident. It was just everything you want, right? Like, I think sometimes we measure our success as coaches with how our athletes cross the line. And I think it's not that it's how do they step on the line? That's really how you measure your success as a coach is how are your athletes stepping up to the line? And in that moment, I knew something special was going to happen because they were stepping up to the line with so much excitement and confidence and determination, all of the things that, that you need to have something magical happen. And, and that's what started it out that DMR wins the title. We have women advancing in the mile, the 800 to the final, the next day, same thing. We have all Americans in the 800, the mile first time ever. And then Courtney Wayman comes back after anchoring the DMR to a win and wins the 3k it was exciting, just wow. super, super exciting. So making that three hour drive on Sunday morning, right? Not even celebrating with the women because, Hey guys, this is 50% of my job. The next 50% happens on Monday. So I haven't slept in I don't know how long, but I'm now going to Stillwater, Oklahoma to coach up these women who were so excited and so 
proud of what their teammates had just done. There was not an ounce of envy, which is really hard in our sport as women to see women win the DMR when your DMR got canceled and you were ranked to win. You know, how are you going to react to that? And they were just so proud that they did it and they welcomed me. And it was so fun to, you know, I hadn't been with them in a couple of days because I was with the other, I had actually made a cardboard cutout of my face for the cross country women. And they, they were like walking around town with, with that cardboard cutout of me um, because it was hard to not be with them, you know, for that entirety of that trip. And so meeting up with them on Sunday and doing our normal Sunday banquet, we always do black dresses for nationals. That's kind of our, our thing. So we still had a nationals banquet dinner, just our team and went out to eat. And I did all the same things that we big fan of just traditions and we have all these traditions here. And so did all of those things. And, you know, I don't, we didn't really talk about winning. I, I think that when you get to this level, it's like, here are the things that we need to do. And that's process-based, right? The results will take care of themselves. Like, let's not focus on the outcome. Let's, let's talk about the process. And so, you know, in that process, it was, we're going to have to be really, really tough. Um, Cause that's a very hard course and the gun goes off and I'm nervous. I'm always nervous when my teams, the better my teams are, the more nervous I am. There was a point of that race at the 5,000 meters where I knew we had a chance to do something. We were in it. We were in it, but Whitney Orton was fading. You know, she had kind of taken the lead and she was fading. I was almost hyperventilating. I actually, you see, if you see me at a cross country meet, you're going to see me sprinting from location to location. Uh, I, I had to walk because I was like almost just, I had to calm my breathing down. Wow. Um, but I had a good feeling about it. And, and the, the look in Anna's face and Aubrey Frenthaway, three women in the top 17. Um, and then, you know, it's not always your stars that when, when you talk about winning, it's not always the stars, the stars do what the stars are going to do of your team, right? They've been doing it all season long. It's, it's the back end. It's those women who stepped up so big, you know, um, Sarah Musselman and McKenna Lee to have races like those women had to be 33rd and 41st and never finishing. I mean, McKenna Lee's first national championship appearance, she's 41st. Sarah Musselman's highest finish was like 168th. She's 33rd and an all American. Those women won it for us. And, and that it was just such a group effort. So that weekend was the only word that describes it is magical. It's a weekend I'll never forget as a coach. Um, I'm grateful that they decided to put, they gave us the opportunity to run that 2020 championship in March. I know some coaches were upset and, you know, I, it was great for us. It was great for us and for our women. And it gave opportunity to women who maybe wouldn't have had an opportunity if it was a different year. Maybe they wouldn't have been in the top seven. Um, so it was, it was super special. And really the bond that was built with watching these women cheer each other on and how they uplifted each other all season long. They would do things in the locker room and decorating and writing cards and just the positivity that came the momentum that came carried into outdoor season, which then carried into Olympic trials and is still, we're still seeing the benefits of it. So very, very proud of those women and what they did for BYU. And, you know, we've now finished second, first, second, the last three NCAA championships, which is, is hard to do. Um, so very, very proud of the women in this program. It, it's because of them. And it, it's not me, Mike, uh, I, if I'm going to be honest with you, like, 
you have to have the right women and coaches know that our athletes are, are the ones who get it done for us. So this success that I'm having is, is because of my mentor gags, a big part of it is gags, but it's not happening without, without these women. And, um, I'm very grateful that I get the opportunity to, to be in this role and and to be on this journey with them. I'll give you a slight correction. You said it's not me. So it is you. And what I mean by that is the one thing is never the one thing, right? So it's like this big pot of stew. Um, while that may be the best stew in the world, and maybe because it's the potatoes, that's part of it. Maybe because it's the beef you have there, that's part of it. it. It all has to come together. You know, the the women that you had on your team, it had to be those women to, to make this that season uh, happen. You had to be at the helm of it to make it happen. The crazy part is it goes all the way back. You mentioned gags. You had to have been coached by gags for this amalgamation to come together and, and happen. So it is you. It's just you with a whole bunch of experiences and mentors and coaches and athletes and support from your school. It's a whole big coloring board there, man. And it made a, it made a beautiful picture. It was really, really awesome to see. Yeah. I, I was very proud. I guess when I say it's not me, I say it's just not, it's not just me, right. You get, you get what yeah. I'm saying. No, no, I and know. I think yeah. um, there's, there are a lot of accolades have come for me and just, it's been fun to see that and receive that. And I'm grateful for that, but it, there's so much behind the scenes. And those are the women, the women every day with just sweat, tears, sacrifice, determination, all of those things that have, have made them who they are. And, and really, once you win, you realize it, it, like I mentioned to you before we started recording it, it really isn't about the win. It's about the chase and, and who these women have become through this sport. It, it's pretty special. Uh, agreed. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting, the mix and how you attacked it. Uh, I wanted to explore that because I would not have guessed the way you said you created two separate teams. Like that kind of made sense, right? But like you almost, you, you hardcore two separate teams. Like you said different practices and different weightlifting times and things like that. Like, so where, where did that nugget because because now you're a genius because you've come in second first and second right so everybody thinks you know whatever everything right so where did that come from like and I could be wrong I could maybe I'm wrong and maybe Lance did that at Arkansas and um, Mike did it at Oklahoma State maybe I have no clue but that seemed very unique and I didn't want to pass over that where did that vision for that come from instead of saying hey because you're, you're talking about what a great group of women you have so to me I'd have been like oh yeah so she kept them all together and they fed off of each other and they all had their maybe separate goals for their events or their season but like run for her it's, it's all of us together as her right but you you did the opposite of that where did that thought process come from and did you have any doubts like oh man uh, I'm gonna try this but this could blow up so as I was creating the practice schedule, how, how was I, as one coach, going to coach all of these women together for two different championships? There, I couldn't give them 100% of me. The only way that I could give indoor women and the cross-country women 100% of me is if I separated them and I separated myself into two separate coaches. And so on this day, I'm coaching indoor and on this day or at this time I'm, I mean there were often times where we were out in the snow for the cross-country women who were running outside and doing repeats but then I would come into the indoor track and coach the indoor track women and the training demands for those two performances 
were vastly different because of the location of nationals. Now, if it was this year, Florida, which was basically a track, maybe the training would look very similar, but it looked very different. And selfishly for myself, in order to give my best, I had to separate the two. Otherwise someone was going to get shortchanged. And I knew that about me. So instead of having one dominant performance and someone getting overshadowed or someone doing a workout on their own and me not being there, I'm really hands-on. I think that's the thing about me is you, people may call it OCD. I slightly am. I'll own that. Um, but I like to be a hands-on coach. I want to be a part of all of that. I want to give that immediate feedback in the workout during those hard times. I just want to be there. And so in order for me to be there, I had to split up the two groups. See, you are a genius. When you explain it that way, it's like, oh, that as soon as you said about the time constraints and, and of course the, um, um, the, the technicality of the, of the, of the course itself, it's like, oh, well, actually that made like, like I felt dumb for asking the question, Dilji, now that you said it that way. No, no. Uh, all right. And well, then the teams would come, they would come cheer on the other group. Yeah, that, that was cool. That which was neat. Did, did you expect that? Or was that kind of an unexpected happiness there? It just organically happened. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if there would be envy and, oh, she gets to do a track workout. Right. I have to run cross country. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, it wasn't organically. They were just so happy for each other. And yeah. that that was that was really neat to to watch and experience that growth and the maturity that came to these women mm. during this really tough time where you know, someone got an opportunity that was taken away from someone else. Mm -hmm. And that could be really hard. So um, they, they embraced it, they owned it and, and good things happened. What a skill I talked about gag skill of making everybody feel like he was his favorite. What a skill for you as a coach and a maturity from the, the women on the team of keeping at bay the coulda, shoulda. Well, that could have been me. That should have been me. That was my relay win. you know, those kind of things to keep that at bay, uh, that selflessness is probably played a bigger part than maybe we're even given credit for it. And the, uh, the uh, performances of that weekend. Uh, yeah. okay. Last topic. And I'll let you get out of here. Thank you so much for this. Dilji. This is awesome. But it, it made me think about now we've gone through a unique aspect and you've gone through many, many seasons of a traditional, um, uh, year, meaning cross country in the fall, indoor in the winter, outdoor and outdoor extended, meaning going into uh, U.S. championships and uh, maybe post that as well. Now we had this um, cross country and indoor together season and, and then an outdoor. Uh, did we learn anything from that? What I mean by that is, you know, big picture here, not did BYU, did Diljeet learn anything, anything from that, but did we learn anything from that on the NCAA side? Like maybe this is how we should go to it, or was it just the anomaly and let's get back to how it normally is and let's race from August through June? <laughs> I think what we learned as coaches is less is definitely more. The reason why you were seeing the performances and the times drop like they did is kids were rested. They had longer buildups. They had an opportunity to recover. We weren't rushing and, and chasing marks with short periods of time and racing and racing and racing. And so I think taking a step back now, less is more. We don't need to race our athletes as much to have those great performances. So you're probably going to see coaches be a little more strategic about how you go to the well when you race, right? You're making these deposits in, in workouts and then you, you cash out in, in these races. So let's cash out less during the season so we can really have a great 
opportunity at the championship part portion of the season. So I think from the coaches that I've talked to, that was one of the, the main topics of conversation is our athletes did better with less racing. That'll be interesting to see if and how and or if that plays out, because at the same time, uh, you know, we're in January when you're listening to this, but uh, I think there were more December meets than I've ever seen uh, at all. So we'll see uh, how it plays out. Maybe maybe it'll be more of a distance thing because of the cross country component of it. Maybe it'll be more of a a distance uh, based uh, thought philosophy there. I am so glad we got to do this till G. <laughs> I mean, uh, this was more and better than I could have ever expected. I'm, uh, you know, just so thankful of your openness and authenticity uh, throughout today's conversation. Uh, it was awesome. It really was. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So till G, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Uh, I don't know how you're going to top 2021 in total, uh, but something tells me you're going to figure it out. <laughs> and we're excited to thank watch you. it along with you. So thank you uh, for being here, Jill G. Appreciate you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. What an incredible journey Coach has been on. So awesome to hear their story in their own words. Tremendous proof of the positive effects coaches make on a daily basis. Help us spread the word of this great journey by sharing on your favorite social media channel. And don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. You just might get a shout out on a future episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when we'll connect you with another amazing coach.